Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss what leadership looks like in the modern insurance business. We talk to insure tech leaders and founders, innovators and change agents from the insurance industry. We also talk to thought leaders from outside the industry, such as organizational psychologists, performance coaches and investment professionals. Anyone who can add value to the conversation on how to lead insurance businesses of the future. Sorry to interrupt the podcast. This is the host, Alex Bond. Um, We've got an exciting announcement to make. Um, Off the back of the podcast, we're exposed to many issues that are kind of topical or current, um, and some become really pervasive. And sometimes we are in the position to do something about it in our role as a recruitment business that specializes in insurtech. And one of those issues has been the lack of female leadership in insurance technology businesses. It's nothing new. It's nothing surprising. Um, We can see that the numbers are just simply not representative in the traditional insurance industry. But in a nascent industry, in in a burgeoning and growing industry, in an industry that's so exciting, it's a little bit disappointing to see that the numbers continue to not stack up. There are simply not enough female leaders in the insurance technology business. So what can we do about that? Well, look, there's no time for me to have a savior complex, but what I can do is build networks and what I can do is build platforms. And so one of those platforms we've decided to kind of launch is the flight series, the female leaders in insurance technology event series. This will be a series of events that will start in 2022. They will involve in-person events, they involve online events to encapsulate the global audience, and they are going to include some specific mentoring opportunities. So I'm excited to announce that the first of those is happening on 13th of January. That will be a London in-person event, it'll be a ticketed event, um, and we get a fantastic panel of female speakers to talk about attracting talent to InsureTech. So if you're interested in InsureTech, if you're interested in discussing opportunities in InsureTech, we'd love to see you there. Please check out the FinPro website, www.wearefinpro.com, for more information. Good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and I'm very lucky to be joined by uh, Benjamin and Anthony from Collective Benefits. Um, good morning, gents. How are you? Morning. Good, thank you. Very good. Good. I've been promised that we're doing an expose of the man behind <laughs> Collective Benefits. Well, look, um, you, you've been very successful in raising some, uh, a good round recently, so you've been in lots of press, but for anyone who's not paying attention to that sort of thing. Um, Anthony, if you you could take us through Collective Benefits, who you guys are and what you do. Yeah, thank you. And it's great to be on the podcast. I, um, we try not to uh, pay too much attention to the press. Uh, it's great when it's positive, but that's always one newspaper edition away from the negative, I guess. But it's uh, building protections and benefits for independent workers. Um, We have seen the tremendous growth in those choosing to work flexibly, whether that's work or self-employed or agency or what have you, driven by the need for freedom and flexibility. Um, But with that, many have opted into a model that has at times left them exposed, whether it's around accessing or protecting their independent work or even just getting the well-being and joy that they would be granted as a full-time employee. The system hasn't made independent work work for everyone and frankly we're on a mission to fix that. 
Um, we've built a solution um, that allows platforms to deliver for their workers dynamic usage-based real-time protections and benefits to help them access work, to be safer in the work they do, as well as motivate and engage them and reward ongoing achievements. And so we've been able to um, launch the platform. We started here in the UK, now live across 27 markets, working with over a quarter million independent workers. Uh, I'm really excited, I think, about the opportunity ahead. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, there's obviously a massive kind of slug of regulation right in this market it's been it's been a bit of a topic of the press and i know we don't touch on the press but touching on the press again like the, the, there has been a lot about you know uber's obviously been in the press a lot um uh, one thing that i want to explore is kind of sometimes constraints are things that drive business and i, I was wondering sort of, to talk about the regulatory environment is, is this a business born out of that regulatory environment that kind of um that sort of change in emphasis on who's employed and not employed, um, is, it, is it sometimes the restrictions that have created this opportunity? Yeah, I'm not sure the business is um, born out of that regulatory environment. I think you know, what the business is born out of is a fundamental problem where independent workers had a protection gap. You know, they lap from being um, an employee in terms of sick pay, accident and injury pay, family leave, compassionate leave, etc. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what we have, what we found is that protection gap was being hindered by the regulatory environment, often by a misinterpretation of that regulatory environment. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a concern that if you were uh, a on-demand platform, you weren't in a position to provide these kinds of benefits and uh, insurance to to your workers, and you know, and that's simply not true. There's never been a situation or been a case where uh, the provision of benefits to workers, which actually makes them more independent, more secure, um, was something which was was not allowed. So, yeah, there's been a lot of confusion about this and a lot of uncertainty, and I think what we're seeing, you know, particularly you know, hotting up over the last year, whether that's Uber or others, is a lot of clarification about the way in which platforms work and work with their workers. Um, and, and I think that clarification is actually helping the business more, more than not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I suppose it's one of those outside looking in, I've probably got a surface level uh, red top scandal version of what's actually happening. Um, what's it's the good, Yeah, I mean, it's a good example, you know, kind of Canada, you know, Uber is often, you know, the one which is criticized most in the press, but actually Uber, you know, has always, prior to the Supreme Court decision, invested the most money out of all the platforms in ensuring that their riders and drivers are, are well protected. Mm. Um, so often I think the red press top is, is sadly very misleading. Yeah. If yeah. I could also say, aren't all businesses born out of a, a customer and met want or need? Um, you know, whether it's I have to go to a bookstore to buy a book or whether it's I don't have the sick pay but I want to be flexible. I think everything is born out of an unmet need. I think what we've seen is an evolution of the market we operate in, mm -hmm. driven by COVID and other macro trends. Convenience and delivery is now a wholesale part of the fabric of many households. And as a result, that's created operational and um, worker challenges like many businesses who are scaling where technology and new forms of risk transfer can fill the gap. And I think that's what we've morphed into from an initial inception point. Mm -hmm. oh, it's interesting. Talk to me about the kind of morphing. So is the business as we see it today and, and the way that you interact, is that sort of different from the initial premise? Again, it isn't all good businesses. Uh, <laughs> the initial premise, we were a sneaker company at one point. Now, uh, 
Day one was day one, right? So we had a, a problem in the market we felt was an unmet want and need. And we looked at the different personas who were facing that problem. Um, I think what's clear is that the problem has never changed. And I think until it's mission complete, will never change. What I think has evolved is our route to the customer and the proposition, therefore, that associates it um, from individuals to platforms. But also, I think the persona shift from initially, we were much more focused on what I'd say no-collar professionals, um, you know, living in Brighton, doing web development, or even hosting their own podcast. Mm -hmm. um, but what we saw was an acute need for these protections, particularly through lockdown as delivery and last mile logistics really expanded, the need for this being more pertinent within a certain persona and demographic. And that's drawn us to focus on specific areas initially. Mm. So what do you, I mean, it's a difficult question for your answer, and I, I, I appreciate this. It's kind of one of those. One for Ben, then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Ben. Um, <laughs> no, but this, I've sort of put this question in there, and it's, it's probably difficult to answer, but, I, you know, I think, I think it's important. One. Like, the gig economy is another thing that is, is kicked around as, as, is it a good idea, is it not? Um, I think in principle it is, but is there a risk that, you know, you're obviously fulfilling a need, which is kind of to, to provide those kind of benefits that people might not get in a traditional gig economy. Um, yeah, in, insurance is a social good. I genuinely believe that. But what do we think about the gig economy? Is, is, is genuinely that good for society or is it kind of, for me, it's, it's, it's not necessarily the case. And perhaps it's kind of a side effect of, of, of kind of an inefficient economy as, as it's working at the moment. Um, I just wondered if you yeah. give a comment on that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think there's been a dramatic um, and rapid development of the gig economy is something which was born out of the financial crisis in 2008 and, um, and something which is, um, hasn't always grown in, in the most, um, uh, sustainable way but that said you know, you know is the gig economy good I mean you know, my answer to that would be would be yes absolutely it's good you know it's good for people working who may have caring requirements who may have part-time roles they may be studying um, and enables them to earn uh, in that space so I think the flexibility of gig work is something which is hugely valued and our members time and time again tell us how much they value that and um, we've also been doing some research recently on on do people find their work meaningful in the gig economy? And the answer is yes, they absolutely do. You know, there is something meaningful about being, you know, taking someone safely from one place to another, you know, about delivering food to a family who you know, are having a family meal. There's lots of things which are very meaningful about that work. Um, so I think, you know, is, is the gig economy a good thing? Yes, I think you know, there are people who want to work in the gig economy and it enables them to do so. Um, it enables us as, as customers of that, of that service to benefit as well. You know, you know, can you imagine how we would have got through lockdown without you know, the, the food delivery services and, and other delivery services that, that we now take advantage of so regularly and so frequently? So um, is it a good thing? Absolutely. And if it wasn't a good thing, it wouldn't be so omnipresent across the world. Mm. Yeah. I don't know if I agree with that last point. I would, if, if, it was, if it wasn't a good thing, it wouldn't be omnipresent. But I do think the flexibility um, and the kind of ability to act as individuals are very sort of strong um, telling point. And also... But it's, you know, I, I, you know, it's grown for a reason, Alex. You know, it's grown because you know, people want to engage in that work and people want the benefits of those services. Mm. Um, mm. You know, do you remember what it was like trying to wait for a minicab before Uber? Yeah. 
Well, I'm a bit selfish. I lived in London for most of that time, so it was quite easy. But um, it was... <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, it's I, I, become I, a popular discussion around gig economy, and that has a, a very... Uh, subconscious um, resonance with people for Deliveroo, Just Eat, Uber in the UK particularly, right? But I actually think we need to be careful about blanket labeling things. I think if anything, accuracy of information is critical. And whilst in food delivery, there may be a very lively debate, I think in many industries, it's absolutely part and parcel that people operate and are able to choose without discrimination to operate in that way. Mm. When was the last time you hired a full-time plumber? Mm. When your boiler goes down, no one cares that they're a subcontractor with no sick pay for a fulfillment agency who's got a contract. Similarly, people who are getting loved ones to come and care for Alzheimer's patients and disabled people in their home, but these people, maybe need flexibility to send money home. Again, nurses in the NHS, there's many, many, many people who operate independently and for whom the flexibility and freedom is critical, critic, critic, ah, essential <laughs> to work in big cities like London. Mm. Yeah, I'm from Liverpool. You can travel across town quite quickly to do a nursery pickup or look after a loved one. But in London, in these huge mega cities around the world, yeah, commuting, traveling, actually, some people need midweek off. And I think that's a very important part of modern lifestyle that sometimes gets forgotten in the debate around are delivery drivers appropriately classified. And it's a very important distinction, I think, that needs to be made. Yeah, no. I, and I think, you know, I take your point as well. That I think I think when we think gig economy, we, we instantly think of, you know, food delivery drivers but but it's it's you know it's broader than that you know the, the completely i mean in my sector i mean I'm, I'm a recruitment professional that's what i do and and for years there's been people that are career contractors and and you put it another way they're, they're gig economy workers they that you know i i had one guy who became my hero that was very um blatant about the fact he worked six months a year and the rest of the year he went skiing um because that's what he wanted to do um and now the the kind of the legal um, environment has changed, so that person now does get benefits. But at the time, it wasn't that that person was getting benefits. They were getting paid, they were getting paid well, but everything else they were looking after. So I think I think the definition of what, what gig economy is definitely gets swept into the one bucket. And it doesn't often get presented in the kind of best way, because I think it also gets tied in with that zero hours contract um, conversation, which is, is, is generally takes a negative tone as well. Um, but look, I didn't. I didn't bring you on just to sort of answer the social wheels of the world because I think that's unfair. But um, I'd, I'd love to kind of get your yeah, comment on. But it, but it is fair that you know there are there are social ills about about this, and that's something which we and 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 the platforms that we work with are, are determined to change. You know, mm -hmm. individuals just because they choose flexibility shouldn't be at a disadvantage in terms of their their financial safety nets. Sure. Um, yeah, that's fundamentally what we believe, and that's what we stand for. Yeah. Yeah. Seems quite self-serving for us to say the gig economy should survive. Someone may take a nefarious view that we're that way inclined, but actually we've dedicated our lives, we left our jobs, we've invested our time and passion and commitment because we believe in actually the, the model of flexible work combined with the model of social protections that we hold so dear within um, Western Europe. And so um, it's not just that we think we'll sell more insurance if people remain gig economy. It's that 
insurance has a role to play in ensuring independent work works for everyone. And that's really what's very important for us. Mm. And, I, and I think that's the thing. I mean, I, I'm a big proponent of it. I mean, I, I when I originally left my full-time employment to work for myself, it, it wasn't to create some company, it was to work for myself. Um, so I'm, it screams to me. I mean, I went to work on film sets and trained as an actor and uh, just because I, I had the time to do that, um, I wouldn't have been able to in full-time employment. So, yeah, I, I'm a big proponent of it. Um, and uh, it's something I strongly believe and encourage people to do. Um, but talking about social issues and, and social, you know, you, you guys have a head of social impact. Um, so I wanted to talk about that. You know, what's the thinking behind that? What does that actually mean in practical terms for you as a business? Yeah, um, I mean, I'll go, go first for Antti will chime in. But, yeah, fundamentally, at the heart of what we're doing, we're trying to make people's lives better. We're trying to make people who otherwise lack protection have the protections they need so they can live and work without compromise. Um, so social impact is, is very much at the heart of what we do. Um, and it's at the heart of how we communicate who we are, um, both to uh, external, external platforms, both as part of our employee value proposition. Um, but we need to make sure that we are delivering real impact and we need to make sure that we are making the change to people's lives that we believe we are. And if not, how can we make it better and progress it further? Um, so having that dedicated function uh, in the organisation um, is something which is really is the key to who we are in the heart of, heart of our organisation. Mm -hmm. Early stage business has that role. Um, but we do. And I think, you know, that's, that speaks volumes about what we're trying to achieve. Mm. So what does that person, because I wouldn't, as a recruitment professional, I wouldn't know how to write that job spec. What, what, is that, what does that person actually do on a sort of practical day-to-day? Well, -day? Maybe rather than what they do, let's talk about the unmet need that they fulfill, right? Mm -hmm. Because people can do whatever they want, but what's the value of that? I think ultimately, worker well-being has become a battleground for platforms and workers. Mm -hmm. And for the platforms, there is many impacts of this. It can impact the realization of their own values. Clearly, it, it leads to reduced reputational risk. Um, it can lead to high worker churn or low retention, acquisition challenges. But also, as we've seen um, recently with Uber promoting their worker well-being to customers, it has an impact on customer adoption and sustainability. So it's right at the heart. With anything that you're trying to improve, any metric, the number of listeners of your podcast, the number of insurance policies that you sell, you need a metric to track. No metric's perfect, but you're looking for leading and lagging. And actually, there has been a, a gap around how people evidence and articulate the worker well-being work that they do. How do you classify it? How do you track improvements? Is it an all or nothing game? What happens if I add a little bit? And ultimately, social impact is a framework that allows people to evidence and articulate back the work they're doing on worker well-being. And that can be the difference between a £2 billion loss on your share price for Deliveroo versus a £2 billion premium paid by DoorDash for all. So it's a £4 billion commercial question that didn't have a framework to answer before. And that means we can go to partners, to workers, to society as a whole, and talk about the ways in which worker well-being is being fulfilled. Do we contribute? Yes. We've absolutely mapped our business against ways we can contribute to that worker well-being. But we're absolutely not a um, panacea. We're not an all-in-one solution to the problem. And actually, there is many things that impact worker well-being, and we're just helping evidence and articulate it. 
Yeah. So just for clarity, so this, this person is working with partnerships organisations. It's not just an internal looking collective benefits. That's really interesting because it's it, it parallels nicely with some of the stuff I've seen in cybersecurity and actually ESG um, in that people are working with organisations to say, right, we want to we want to have an ESG policy for underwriting. Well, one of the ways to do that is you can't instantly just go, well, we're not going to underwrite anything that doesn't fit this. You've got to work with organisations to go, how do you move them towards being ethical, sustainable in, in, in what they do as a business model? And therefore, you can underwrite with them going forward. But it, it's a partnership. It has to be a partnership. Otherwise, it's a, it's either a yes or a no, or I mean, it isn't a partnership. It's, 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 it's dictatorial. Um, and, and, and obviously, it's a bad business model if you're just going to yeah, turn look, it it's, it's, it's a journey um, for, for organisations. It's a journey for us as well. Um, we have very firm beliefs about worker well-being uh, and you know, what, are, you know, what is the minimum standard that individuals should expect. And, you know, if you're on a job doing something for, you know, where a platform is earning money out of that, the very least you can do is ensure they have the right level of protections in place. That's something we believe, mm-hmm. and it's something we want to evidence. And um, the platforms we work with, we want to share those values. There might be a journey in how we get them there, and, and that needs to be a partnership. It's really mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating to me because it, it's it's well known that you know in my in my world when people move job, they're, they're never moving for it's never comp. It's 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 always like either the opportunity is too great to miss, but usually it's about fulfilling roles you know um and then and then it's it's all those kind of additional bits it's interesting what you mentioned Anthony, about the kind of um people being more fulfilling more fulfilled in their role and they have more fulfilling jobs and and, and obviously like base levels of protections are, are part of that it's part of that employer well-being package like how do you know your employer cares about your well-being well they've invested in it as as, as, as anything else ben something you and i talked about prior to in a previous conversation was about b corps um and i uh, i was interested to yeah because of the kind of values that you guys demonstrate i, I wondered why uh, if you were going to make a move towards that journey to be a b corp if not why not um yeah i just wanted to because obviously some businesses have that kind of have a similar value set to you so i wondered if it's something you'd considered and, and if if you haven't then why wouldn't you be interested in doing it yeah, I think the B Corp movement's a, a fantastic movement. I think we've seen that also you know, growing around the world and we've seen you know, companies large and small um, adopt and, and go through the B Corp certification process. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not something that we have ruled out, um, but I think at the heart of what we're doing is social good and we're very focused on, on, on building that. Um, so I don't, we don't feel, I think it's something which we are required to do to prove our kind of social chops, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's inherent in who we are. Um, but certainly it isn't something we've ruled out and, you know, we can certainly see the value of it. And I think we've seen the value of that in, in, in a number of businesses like Lemonade, for example. Like I think it's really helped with their consumer proposition. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not something which we, we yet focus on in terms of direct to consumer. So, um, but I think if you're going to do it, you've got to do it for the right reasons. And you've got sure. to do it because it's you know, true to your business and you've got to heavily invest in it to make it work. And um, at the right point in time, that might be something that we, we take on. I think... Um... I, I would love to see a world where we can help create a B Corp relevant for platforms and gig workers, where we can create a benchmark for what 
we think social impact means within this framework. B Corp is very focused on the actions of boards and executives within commercial entities. I think we are driven by a different passion for a different change uh, towards sustainability. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we've always thought about how do we help define this category, in, 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 you know, in conjunction with our partners. Uh, and our partners need to believe in the basic fundamentals, as Ben noted earlier, that we believe in. Uh, it's not just about product, it's about impact. And I don't expect anybody to try and spend money if they can't articulate the value. But if they can and they don't believe, then it's not about a certificate for us, it's about fundamental change. Yeah, I, yeah, I always worry about these things, but as soon as you sort of certify something, it's, it, it can become a, you know, certifying for certifying's sake. It's, it's then, it's a good thing to kind of promote your business. And, and that's, I know that's a cynical view, but unfortunately that's, that, that's what these things tend to happen. We've got no interest in doing something for the sake of greenwashing. Like. Sure, exactly, exactly. I mean, greenwashing is exactly the right kind of analogy. Um, so I wanted to take you back. Something we we, we talked on um, the the pivot of the business earlier. Um, you know, and, and I, I thought it was such a good comment. As to like, who who doesn't? You know, if you if you're in this sort of well, it's a graveyard of people. Actually, maybe I should say. It's, it's only the companies you know about who solve what Unmet want to need. There is a graveyard of ambition, energy, and money mm -hmm. uh, for people who were building to not meet an Unmet want to need. It's just as simple as that, right? Yeah, 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 completely. Um, but in your sector, I, I did want to know that you, so you have a B2B model. Um, did you look at B2C? Uh, was, was, that, was that something you thought about? Um, so our, our primary distribution channel has been through the partners, but as a marketplace, we enable both customers, members and partners to participate. And so it's not have we ruled in or ruled out any single line of distribution. It's about protection, access, joy and well-being. They need to have a sustainable, independent career. And so there is absolutely occasions on where it would make no sense to not enable members to purchase type of certain things or manage certain things themselves. That could include motor insurance if they just need to buy motor and get live. You know, the platforms maybe won't buy that. Versus, and all the way to the other end where individual rewards and benefits are at the discretion of the member, right? If they're the ones that they choose to take advantage of. So choice for members is at the, at the heart of how the platform and marketplace works, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to a linear approach to kind of retail or commercial on the insurance side. Mm. I suppose it speaks to your kind of ethos again, doesn't it? It's, it's about individual choice, right? Gig economy, you're putting people are choosing to do it. You want to give them the choices to make the choices around their benefit structure and things like that. The gig economy is not a subsector of underserved people. The gig economy is nearly 50% of the workforce in some form or another. Mm. We don't believe we should be telling anybody how to set themselves up for a successful career. We want to give them a tool and we want to remove challenges of access to basic financial and well-being products so that people can subscribe and opt into uh, a model that makes it not just as good as being an employee, actually better. I don't see why being independent cannot be better on every single front uh, with solutions like ours, whether that be tax or whether that be uh, pensions or whether that be mortgages. I think there's many people, but right now it still remains harder to be independent in that part of your life. And we want to, we want to fix that once and for all. Yeah. 
Talk to, talk to me about mortgage issues. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to. I could fill a very boring and long podcast. But, but that, I mean, it does speak to that point is that, you know, I was thinking that as you were speaking, I was going, there, there are challenges fundamentally of, of being self-employed and, and getting access to things like mortgages, which just or going through the process personally just it feels antiquated i'm like why are we in a world where my affordability is not in question but the 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 mechanism in which the banks operate and offer mortgages is is not fit for purpose essentially you know they're saying oh yeah you can afford it but we're not going to lend you the money because this we have this metric where you're not employed um, Again, new demographics require new models, whether that's underwriting for risk transfer, whether that's underwriting for loans, whether that is experiences. So across the board, um, access to new data sets, better understanding and profiling of personas is only going to lead to more relevant and uh, necessary products in the market. That, again, that's fundamental for any business. Sure, sure. Um, so you guys launched in 2019, is that, is that correct, 2019? 2020, we launched on the April. 1st of April. April. Why is that? Why is, why is, why? the researcher, Alex. <laughs> well, I, I don't want to, I don't want to cast shade chats, but you've seen these questions as well. <laughs> <laughs> I think we, we started planning the business in, in 2019. We launched in April, 2020. There we go. That makes me feel better. <laughs> That's not far, anyone. Yeah. You, all our dreams to come to reality. We had a team. We were based out of Facebook's office in Soho. Free square meals a day. It was fantastic. <laughs> then on the eve of launching, um, you know, we went into lockdown and everything else. So it was a very interesting time, actually. Yeah. How did like talk me through that? Because in, in your sector, some interest really interesting things happened with regards to your kind of base. But did it how how did it impact you? Did it change yeah, think, strategy? You know, look, there was an initial period which I think applied to everyone of just in terms of, also of complete uncertainty, you know. What what is this going to mean at all in terms of our business and how it progresses? You know, I, I distinctly remember a conversation with Anthony saying, you know, well, about two weeks' time. There are going to be no more emails. I'm not going to hear from anyone. Um, and we need to decide, you know, what do we do? What do we focus on? Um, how do we keep the team engaged? So there was kind of like our internal conversations. What, what we then saw was um, those who we, we now work with and, and serve became effectively key workers. Mm -hmm. And we saw a massive rise in, in courier logistics delivery um, and the need for those services over that period. So, um, you know, we were we were one of the beneficiaries of of yeah i think what what became commonplace and standard practice we decided ordering things on yeah and using those services so so we saw a massive growth in those platforms and those businesses um and we saw a, a massive need for those individuals to be protected you know on the front page of the newspapers in you know late march and, and into april were here are a group of people in society who we now incredibly depend upon who are underserved and underprotected, and there we were with a solution for it. I wouldn't like to say that you know that the pandemic was a lucky moment for us. It wasn't. It was an awful moment for for a lot of people, but it but it certainly helped people understand why we existed and what we were trying to achieve. Old adages are always the best, and I think one of them says, um, "There's no such thing as good luck. It's just about great decisions in a bad situation." And the pandemic is certainly 
well, listen, a lot of people are opportunistic in the, uh, there's, there's certain people who did uh, PPC or whatever it was, you know, it, it deals with the government who, who found themselves very well remunerated. So lots of people saw the shifting landscape, delivery firms, fast fashion firms, um, all, all saw the change in behaviours drive a new unmet want and need. And that was certainly true for us. Having said that, you know, we had grand ambitions for hospitality. Uh, we had grand ambitions for certain sectors that faced quite the opposite impact. And back to my point on delivery, consuming the narrative on gig economy. Um, and, and not so true that it was opportunistic for a, a company like a collective in spaces that were so badly affected. So pluses and minuses, um, but ultimately, you don't really have to explain why someone might need sick pay in the middle of a COVID pandemic. And to that extent, you know, it does some benefit for the realization of the problem that people face. Yeah. Is, is that, do you think, have you seen, a, is that a sector part of it, for example, that's taken off more? Because, for example, I know personally for myself, like it's, I hadn't had private health cover for a while. I got private health cover, like just in the middle of it, because I was like, well, that's, it's, it's highlighted a need for me. Um, but I think initially everyone was just trying to work out how to operationalize their business whilst taking into account things like contactless delivery and mask wearing and, you know, private hire vehicles. And that whole industry was very badly damaged given that people weren't out taking taxis home. So uh, not inherently, it wasn't just like an absolute bombshell in that sense, but I would say that ultimately it led to food delivery, Q-commerce, parcel delivery, B2B, those type of kind of fulfillment services becoming a, a core part of the fabric of the nation, uh, actually across Europe really, um, in a way that hadn't been seen um, growth-wise for a while. And so I think that's been a big part of it. Sure, sure. Um, I wanted to just shift gears slightly and talk about, um, I'm getting nervous about my points I've written down here in case my, uh, my data. <laughs> um, let's, <laughs> let's, let's gamble. Um, I, I read somewhere that you've made a conscious decision not to go into the US, which is obviously a massive market. Um, I'm hoping that's accurate. And, and I just kind of want to understand kind of, is there, what, what's the overarching thing about that? Or is it something that's potentially for the future? Yeah, look, you can't you can't boil the ocean, and you've got to start somewhere. Um, and so uh, we started initially UK focused, uh, and then moving uh, to across across the EU. Uh, we have a few outliers outside the EU as well, um, including Israel and Japan. Um, have we taken on America yet? No. Are we saying no? Never. Absolutely not. Yeah. Um, but right now, I think there is you know more. You know, more unwanted bits and needs as Anthony would put in in the parts of the world that we're serving mm -hmm. um who you know who we can support and make a real difference yeah sure and um obviously yeah I always I always like to sort of round up towards the new year um we're approaching the new year very rapidly um 2022 what 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 we're we going to see from you guys it's just like more explain you know big growth plans in terms of kind of hiring new markets or or just just growing out from those markets that you've just listed in terms of kind of more boots on the ground perhaps yeah, the political answer is growth 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 <laughs> global domination usa next nobody do you know i'll tell you i'll give you you know actually i think one of the areas we're very focused on for next year is the member experience 
And in insurance, that's often related to claims, and absolutely that's a huge area of, of, of opportunity. But just the end-to-end member experience, what a member feels and experiences as part of Collective is somewhere we are passionate about continuing to invest in, and that's driving a large part of our workforce growth. Um, I think um, similarly, alongside protection, well-being, joy, access, there is key areas we think the same innovation and, and remodeling can have massive impact. Um, and so we're pretty focused on a couple of core product initiatives. Um, I won't delve much deeper so people keep a bit of mystery, but um, again, you know, members being at the heart of how we think about this problem and the personas of those members. So that, that probably gives you an indication to our mindset heading into the new year. Yeah. So, Can I talk about one thing that we did actually that I was very pleased about, I think brings it together. Um, we, we've been hosting these pop-ups. So we've been launching exactly what it sounds like, taking containers, dark kitchens, doing lounges like private member clubs in all the places where gig economy people hang out so they can get a coffee and a free snood and swap ideas and get access to learning languages and whatever it might be, just giving them a cafe to hang out in. Uh, and, and this is really at the core of, it's not just about productizing insurance, but I think it's about building a community that they can feel part of. And the pop-ups are an initiative that's, believe it or not, in the real world for a digital tech company, um, that I think exemplifies how we want to build relations with our community. Mm. Mm. I can see the both of that. I, I, every Thursday morning, me and a lot of people that run small recruiting businesses, we have a coffee and um, yeah, over Zoom, and we've been doing that the whole of the pandemic because you can franchise our collective cafe brand and call it the collective cafe for independent recruitment consultants. that kind of you know sharing sharing tips and tricks and things. Yeah, it's something which is key to you know success in any in any business, any community. You know, we. We met an extraordinary guy who who knows how to convert your your push bike into an electric bike. These are the bits you need to buy on Amazon. This is how you do it. And he was explaining to the others around him, like this is what you do. And and having that push bike from moving from a push bike to an electric bike means you can do more deliveries, you can increase the catchment area, you can deliver, and you can make more money, you can earn more, and um, you can be more financially secure. Um, that gets lost. Those bits get lost in when we when we talk about this demographic and and who they are and what they're trying to achieve. Social bonds, human connections, peer-to-peer -peer learning. You know, we're not doing a training course here, but everybody needs these in old school Maslow's hierarchy of needs, at, at the core of people's desires. And that isn't lost because you do a different type of task. It can be digital, but it can be all types of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I think particularly for, you know, the, the thing that resonates with me, that sort of, that, that sense of community. I mean, that's why we do this, you know, talk about this Thursday morning thing. The reason we do this is because we're all kind of, one to up to about eight man businesses and and it's a sort of lonely it can be quite a lonely existence but that kind of sharing of ideas and you know it's a sense of community built there and of course there are tips and tricks and things like that sadly no one's taught me how to electrify a bike yet but um we we have, we have talked about uh, i uh, i just came this morning from a breakfast with another group of coos where we uh, we moan about coos like anthony and uh, yeah. uh, what pain they are to work with <laughs> I was going to say, largely, it's us being like, just letting, letting off stick. That's off the record, right? We're <laughs> straight out. This slander from my partner on that on, on podcast. No, we, want, we wanted to meet on the bone, but um, but look, we, we've hit that magic 45-minute mark. So, um, gentlemen, thank you so much for being um, guests. I'm really interested in what you're doing. I, I really believe in it. And thank you for letting me challenge you on it, because otherwise it wouldn't be an interesting podcast. So... Yeah, thank you very much for your time.
Cheers, Cheers. Alex. Thank you. As always, this podcast is brought to you by FinPro Search Partners, often simply known as FinPro. FinPro is an executive recruitment business working in the insurance and insure tech space on an international basis. If you would like to find out more about FinPro, please visit our website, www.wearefinpro.com or our FinPro company page on LinkedIn. I've been your host, Alex Bond, and I would personally love to connect with anyone who is interested in the changing world of insurance. So feel free to reach out to me directly, um, either on LinkedIn or via my email, uh, alex at wearefinpro.com. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and I hope to see you back next week. Thank you.